up into my circle with the opposite of Urkel When I pull up flying purple, people eaters could invite me I feel the fate of Herschel And I just leave them on the limb and hand them up in this is rappers of walking that I already killed them Skin blanco, lyrical weapon kicking like a Bronco Head honcho, spherical presence came from the grotto A dead rapper wrapped his body in a poncho With crackers mellow with a combo like pronto Saganara, kamikaze Welcome back to As In He Grows. I am your host, Remington Ramsey. I've got my celebrity guest host, Dr. Brian J. Ramsey. Welcome Good to the show. Good day. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> We've got uh, Steve Rupp with Keller Williams uh, for the real estate edition of this podcast. Successful people doing successful things in Indianapolis. And I can say that uh, with supreme confidence, knowing that you are one of, if not the most decorated... Uh, realtor by designation in the world. And so what does that actually mean? Because we've talked about this a few times. You're, you love education. Uh, if you look at a realtor's business card, it has these little designations of the classes they've gone through. But for you, like, what does that actually mean? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Love yeah. to be here. Remington O'Brien. Um, so uh, to me, I think whether you are in real estate or any industry, it's important that you are educated and knowledgeable uh, about your craft. Um, you need to master it. And let's face it, there's a really low barrier to entry to get into real estate. So getting your license is just the beginning. That just gives you the license to start learning. And I believe that it doesn't stop when you pass your licensing exam. It really should continue on because, frankly, you're helping clients with one of, if not the most valuable asset that they'll ever own or sell or trade, exchange, whatever. And you owe it to your clients to be that consummate professional who is knowledgeable and educated on how best to help them. Mm. Well, you're definitely that, and we've got a, a, a couple topics on here that, as a consumer, I might think uh, that's super boring, but I actually think is really important for them uh, to understand. And then real estate agents as well are uh, just chomping at the bit for information, specifically like on things like appraisals. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as a consumer, you might not care about appraisals until it affects you, uh, but I definitely think that there's some interesting content there. Um, why should we care? I mean, let's just start here, and you're going to speak on a panel here um, next month on, on appraisals for the real estate industry. But as a consumer, if I'm listening to this, why should I even care about the appraisal process? Because it impacts you big time. Sure. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> yeah. that's the short answer. Uh, long answer is, uh, it is it, uh, appraisers are probably the last bastion, if you will, before you get to closing. So um, appraisers can completely change the outcome of your transaction or keep it on track let's but let's break that down for a minute so you have myriad people involved in a transaction on average there's 27 on a given transaction wow. the appraiser is the one who is going to justify for the bank whether the value of that on that that's listed on that purchase agreement the number on that purchase agreement is an acceptable value for their client who is not the buyer. It is the bank or the financial institution that they represent. And so without getting too far into it, you've got two different types of valuation here in real estate. You have market valuation, which is what a buyer and seller are willing to pay at any given point in time. And then you have uh, collateral valuation, which is what an appraiser is looking at for a bank. So you can have two totally different definitions of value depending upon who you're talking to. 
and what their role is in the transaction. Most consumers, and I, I would even submit a lot of real estate agents, don't know that. So in my opinion, educating clients on both sides of the transaction to understand what the difference is and how it impacts them is really important. Appraisers are looking back in the past of, of what sales have happened in the past. Sellers need to know that. Sure. But buyers are looking at what's happening in the future. They are leading indicators of where the market is going. Mm -hmm. Appraisers are showing you where it's been. And that right there, the space in between those is the delta that can throw people into a tailwind if they don't have any kind of, um, of a clue as to what can happen when you see those two differences. So if you have an appraisal come in at 300, but your contract is for 350, you have a problem. Sure. And, and, and it could end up either blowing a deal or it could end up costing one or both sides quite a bit of money in order to come together and renegotiate the terms of the purchase agreement. That's why buyers and sellers should care. So I imagine you have some horror stories that came out of uh, these. Uh, how long have you been a realtor? I've been in real estate for 23 years. 23 years. So you've, you've definitely got your horror stories uh, <laughs> on appraisals. Um, so, okay, if as I'm listening to this and, as, and the limited knowledge that I actually have about the appraisal process, it seems very subjective. It seems like it's one guy's opinion on a property. It seems like uh, it is able to be manipulated if I can explain. Like I, I know when I uh, sold a home, I got all, all the prepared everything that we had done financially to um, you know build it up, change the bathrooms, the, the floors, all that kind of stuff. And I prepared that for the person who's determining – uh, based on comps and based on you know my property, what it's worth. I mean, am I wrong to say that it's some guy that's is his opinion? And if I mean, what are my options if the appraisal comes in low? Can I get another appraisal? Like, how does that work? I know that's a lot of questions. That's a lot. Answer of questions. all of them. Steve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in one sentence. Yeah, in one sentence or less. So, uh, so you have lunch coming in, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, basically, in a nutshell, um, when an, an appraisal is is an opinion of value. Absolutely. It is one person's opinion at a particular point in time, and that can change. Just like a real estate agent, you can have five real estate agents that you interview, and you're going to have five different valuations. It's one person's opinion. I would argue a, an experienced appraiser and experienced real estate agent are pretty equal when it comes to knowledge and putting in an opinion of value. The difference is that there is always more weight given to an appraiser mm -hmm. and their value because they are seen to be impartial. Uh, real estate agents are advocating for their clients, whether it's buyer or seller. So if an appraisal comes in low... Can you give us an actual example while you do this? It's so like on a $500,000 house, like, so I can really visualize what you're talking about. Okay, so let's say, let's say an appraisal... You have a contract sales price for $500,000 for a property. Buyer and seller fully executed purchase agreement. The appraisal comes in at 450. Okay. All right. So we have a $50,000 difference that uh, it would be short is what we call it. So when that happens, the first thing that the agents usually do after saying the few expletives, right? <laughs> <laughs> now I got to do a bunch more work. Yeah. Um, no, it's part of our job is to analyze the appraisal. And the first, and you cannot ask for a review for an appraisal 
based on any subjective information. So for example, the big one is adjustments. You know, most people know about adjustments, right? So you're talking about a 5,000 square foot house versus a 4,500 square foot house, or having a pool or no pool, or having five bedrooms or four bedrooms. Those are all adjustments that an appraiser can make. And there's no set formula on how much those are worth. It's just based off of judgment and experience. So you can have an appraiser who says that the price per square foot for this house is, is, is really $130, and another one is going to come in and say, no, it's $150, and there's no, no one of them is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just an opinion. And so that's what you can't uh, rebut if but you are filing an appeal. But the hat on the appraisal's opinion. Absolutely they do. So when this appraiser comes in low, you're going to have the uh, real estate agents, they should be going through the appraisal to see if there is any factual evidence that is not correct. Here's a really good example. I had one 15 years ago where the appraiser completely left the basement Out of the off kitchen. the appraisal. Yeah. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a material fact that has been left off the appraisal. That was an easy request for a rebuttal. Um, so when, when, you, when you have something like that, you have, uh, they missed a bedroom, they missed a bathroom, um, they have incorrect square footage, and you have to be careful with this because they measure it themselves. But when you have that, then you can go to the bank and ask them to have the appraisal reviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bank doesn't have to grant that review. They can, but you have to give them evidence. Okay. And then they go back to that original appraiser to review their work to see if they want to submit an amended appraisal. And think of it this way, uh, and I've never been a fan of this process. I think most real estate agents are not, because think of of it if you were going into a court of law and a judge ruled against you, and you said, judge, I don't agree with your decision. And so the judge says, okay, on what grounds? So, okay, well, here's here's my reasons why. And they say, okay. I still don't agree with your decision, and I'm going to still rule in, uh, against you. The appraiser is the judge and jury mm-hmm. on the rebuttal requests. You don't have an appraisal panel. What you might find interesting, however, is that Fannie Mae does provide for an appraisal review panel. It has never been initiated, however. Hmm. So how great would it be to have maybe three uninterested appraisers who have nothing to do with that appraiser's company to take all the appeals in to say, yeah, this guy is absolutely right. This is correct on this appraisal. There's no change in valuation. Or, Steve, you've got a really good uh, issue here that you're taking up with this appraisal. We see that they missed a bedroom or they missed the basement or whatever. Yeah. Um, we, we need to make an adjustment. And so we are going to recommend hmm. an adjustment of $20,000 or whatever. But that, unfortunately, has not been implemented. So you have to be nice to the appraiser. And absolutely, if they're having a bad day, that can impact valuation. If you're a jerk to them, it can impact valuation. It shouldn't, but see, that's what that's, but it does. that's what I want to get to because this is so subjective that you can impact the actual decision makers on these processes. The appraiser itself can be identified, talked to, reasoned with, sold on why. It's, sure. What does the appraiser himself or herself have to gain by coming in low on appraisal? Because they actually, if I'm if I'm correct, they have the purchase price in their possession before they make a determination on how much that house is. So why they know that two parties agree, the seller and the buyer say, yep, we think it's worth that. Mm -hmm. We're willing to pay that. 
why would what added what vantage point do they have to come in low and say bank i don't think you should give them the money for this that's a great question and the answer is they don't they don't want to come in low because it just causes a lot more work to them and probably some hate calls from some real estate agents so they don't want to they don't know. No, no, no. If, if, if appraisers could come in at value all the time, they would, as long as it supports it. But let's go back for a second. Let's look at 2000, 2007, 2008. The whole lead up to that, one of the major reasons why we had, and there's a lot of other reasons why that, that whole meltdown happened. But one of the reasons was that appraisers, not all of them, some of them, and some real estate agents too, were unfairly giving too much value to properties that they knew could never be sold for that. They weren't worth what they were putting down, but they were, a buyer and seller was willing to pay for it. So okay. the bank was encouraging them to do it because they wanted to make the loan because then the loan officer gets paid yep. and they, they also redid the way loan officers have gotten paid now. So as a result of that, Dodd-Frank, the Dodd-Frank Act changed all of how this process works to make it a lot more fair and objective and you're going to silo the people that have a lot of the pull in the transaction such as the appraisal so you can talk to the appraiser up and, and this is something that, that people need to understand and even there's some real estate agents that don't know this you are encouraged to talk to the appraiser prior to them submitting their final report after they've submitted that report to their client, which is, let's assume, the bank, right. you can no longer talk to them. Okay. You have to go through the bank. And usually that's going to be um, uh, a, a loan processor, an underwriter, what have you. They can communicate with the appraiser or an appraisal management company if that's who's involved with that. But if uh, before that you are real estate agents are known for being very knowledgeable in the market and appraisers are required by their license to get any and all information that is relevant to that particular sale that does include real estate agents now the one thing we can't do is unfairly um uh unfairly bias them to one opinion or another we just have to give them information so let me show you what that looks like one which, of the things which there's no way that happens you know we there's no way someone i mean maybe maybe with you and and your colleagues but there's no way that every single realtor abides by that by that rule they oh, have they to have some <laughs> i mean salesmanship they don't. Uh, and, and, you know, we're all, we're, all, we're all advocating for our clients, right, right, at the end of the day. You know, Mr. Prazer, I can't believe that you came in so low. My seller, you've just cost them, you know, whatever. But So it, what do they have? So you mentioned earlier, though, and I'm not connecting what they have to gain. Like, are they being held accountable and would lose their license from banks saying, you're coming in too high on multiple properties, you're not good at this anymore, like you're gone? Like, what is their, what do they have to gain again by coming in, like, so, in their heads low? So appraisers are rated, okay. and and if they make too many adjustments, or if they are seeing is is coming in too low too often or too high too often, they will likely be dropped from that bank's or appraisal management company's appraisal panel. Okay, so that's what's holding them accountable is being accurate. Absolutely, uh, the more accurate using. they are, the more job security they have. And how so. would they be able to prove that they're coming in too high? That their def their uh, loans are defaulting too much? 
that would be one of the most obvious reasons. Okay. But default rates are under one percent right now, so you're not seeing a whole lot of that with the appreciation. We're so, seeing. like, it just as a you know blind eye to this, I I would feel like I would come in like it would be smarter as an appraiser to err on the side of too high versus too low because of what you just said about the default rates. Unless there's another metric I'm not thinking of. That's the that's the major one, but but see at the end of the day, if you do start having higher defaults as a result of people not making their payments, they're underwater, the appraisal came bubble in way burst. too high, bubble bursts, you know, which we're not going to have one. But when you have that, you are you are putting that bank, your client at risk for some pretty significant financial exposure and we don't we don't necessarily go into qualified versus non-qualified mortgages but basically if 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 a lender follows all the rules they're insured if that loan were to go into default if they were to break rules and have let's say a a sloppy appraiser that comes in and is known for doing basically what they did in prior to 2000 2007 and 8 and if there's a pattern for this appraiser always coming in high and always meaning the value and not being able to justify their uh, value, um, there would be a very likelihood of the lender being stuck with that default amount. So let's say $250,000 balance on a mortgage. If that lender didn't follow the rules and it wasn't labeled as a qualified mortgage, guess who's eating it? Mm-hmm. The lender. Now, let, let, me, let me answer one thing that may make a little bit more sense to you. Whenever the appraiser turns in their report, it goes to the underwriter. The underwriter then has to review it and validate it to make sure that it does make sense. They actually pull the comparables as well, and they see, and I, I just saw this on a report earlier this week, where an appraisal came in. The underwriter looked at the appraisal report. They reviewed the comparables that they could find, and they didn't see some of the comparables that they thought were applicable to this transaction. And so they sent a note back to the appraiser asking them why these comparables weren't used. Hmm. So if every lender has a quality review team, and I don't, they're all called something different, but that quality review team does that whether it's the underwriter, whether it's a separate team that does it, but they're reviewing all these appraisers for appraisals for accuracy via the public data, and there's a lot of data out there. And if they see a bunch of red flags are going up on this appraisal, they're saying this doesn't make any sense. Okay. Then they're going to throw that back to the appraiser and say, why didn't you use this comp? Why did you use this house that's on a pond sure. when this comp, when the subject property is not on a pond? They get really specific. Okay. And that there so is there's accountability. accountability. I mean, there's yeah, there's built-in accountability. Let me throw out an example in a different realm. So I'm on a committee that we sponsor an essay contest, and we've tried very hard to make it as objective as possible. You know, we we have all the the rubrics. We say here's what you're going to judge it for. Here's how many points. Here's how the process works. We don't know who the student is. You know, we've done everything we can to make it really objective. Here's what I've learned in nearly 30 years of doing this. You can't make it totally objective. So I hear you because if somebody, if a student says something and it trips something in the heart of the person, they're going to give them a little edge on that. Mm-hmm. And you can't. And so finally, we said we can't take that away. What I love about this, how the sausage is made story. I, I love this. This is really good. But I listen to it. I'm a buyer trying to trying to get a home and it's got a pool and I'm not into the pool, but the seller is because they love, you know. And so is it more? Is it less? And the, the um, appraiser comes in and that's, you know, there's a there's a metric for that. As as much as the industry has 
tried to make this, I'm accountable now and you're accountable and here's a double check and everything like this. It seems like that they've done due diligence mm -hmm. to, to make it work in a fair way for everybody. And at the end of the day, we have to say it's still a little subjective. I mean, is it there is. no way, Steve, to, there's just no way to take that out? Well, let's face it. Real estate is unique. Yeah. Every property is different. Mm -hmm. You don't have a, an assembly line making the same widgets one after another. That's why these AVMs, automated valuation models, we all go to them online. That's why they're not that accurate. They've gotten better with more information. But, you know, I, I look at my own house. It's $100,000 overvalued based on what one AV, a very popular AVM has it. I'm like, I would love to get that amount, but there's no way I can justify that. Yeah. And I'm in the business. So that's why there is always going to be what I call objectivity meets subjectivity, the art and the finesse is always going to be included in every valuation, whether it's a real estate agent, whether it is an appraiser, whether it is whoever is valuing a property, there's always going to be some subjectivity. And at the end of the day, the most important person in all of this is the buyer. Right. What is a ready, what willing, willing, and enabled buyer willing to pay at a given point in time for this particular property? And that's going to change from person to person. Let me, let, me make, let me make a really clear point on this. Let's say you have uh, a house that you live in, and your elderly mom who lives by herself is moving to the area, and the house right next door comes up on the market. Do you think that that house to that mom to that family living next door is going to be worth a little bit more mm. than anyone else in the city? Yeah. You betcha. Sure. Right. Right. But can an appraiser factor that in? Right. Absolutely not. Right. But to those people, they're willing to pay more for it because there is a unique situation mm. that is powering and it. And that is a really real example. What's interesting about that is that buyer, that one buyer, if multiplied 10 times or 100 times over, can actually affect the appraisal process because if more multiple buyers are buying over the appraisal, then the appraisals are start, start to shoot up. And especially like if you are in Indianapolis, if you look at the home values going up 10, 20% over the last three or four years, which seems actually mm -hmm. lowballing it, uh, the appraisal process, it must have been pretty frustrating on the front end when I'm starting to see, you know, another neighborhood, they've already caught on that the home prices are going up so they can justify the appraisals, but it hasn't really caught up here yet. So my buyer's ready to buy it and you're coming $50,000 low. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I would have just asked to, you know, have the appraisal a couple months from now, it would have come in even, you know, high. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is mm -hmm. that happening? 100% that's Has happening. Yeah. And that's a really good point. So so let me let me let me mention this. This is this is going to infuriate you. So <laughs> because, Well, that's why we have you here. <laughs> because appraisers are always looking in the rearview mirror to to come up with value, right? You remember we said that at the beginning of this podcast. Sure. Right. So the only way that you're able to get prices to come up is with using forward-looking data. Yes. Sure. Right? right? So you ask appraisers and I have and they will tell you this exact thing. You ask them, how do you get property to appreciate when all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror, yep. looking historically? You know what their answer was? We don't. Cash. Uh, we rely on cash buyers. Uh, well, right now, the appraisal gaps coverages, uh, right? You can't rely on appraised valuations to fuel an appreciating market. So uh, let me give you some stats. Indianapolis, before the past two, three years, only eight to nine percent of our market 
involved all cash transactions. Was, uh, That's it. I was going to ask you that. Eight to nine percent. So now that number is 23 percent. Wow. Almost a quarter of all sales are cash transactions in little investors? old Naptown. Is that investors? A lot of it's investors. And it's also high-priced markets. People are bringing their money from Chicago. is the number Chicago, one out-of-state yeah. location where buyers are coming from investing in Indianapolis. And there have been a multitude of articles that have been written about this all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it is a real problem that's happening right now. So you've got – you have Chicago. You have California. You have New York. You've got uh, Arizona. High-priced markets that are coming into – uh, affordable home uh, markets that are raising these prices up. Let me give you some examples. Because they're paying in cash and raising the appraisal Absolutely. Right. So they appraisals don't care. Are coming in, appraisals they don't care. are coming in right. higher because the cash buyers are, that's what raises the ability for an appraisal yep. to go up. And there's more cash buyers at every price point because you have Chicago people who are buying their actual residences and you have the investors who are buying the two to three, mm -hmm. four hundreds, which are now three to four to five hundreds. Mm -hmm. And so, it's good for uh, a consumer who's trying to sell their house because now their property is yes. going up, but it's not good but for the affordable buying. homes. Yeah, or that's exactly buyers. right. Yeah. And that's what these high price markets are doing, not only to Indianapolis, but to every market. It may surprise you to know that Indianapolis, at least before a couple, three years ago, I haven't seen the latest stats, was the most affordable housing market in the country relative to income. That's one of the reasons why a lot of people moved here. So people are still seeing that. In fact, if you go, one of the, the sources where a lot of people are finding indie is Google. Yeah. We're on the top right. 10 list of, of just everything. about every metric <laughs> out there. So people right. are saying, hey, how long will indie, that last, though? Because it's been that way for a while. How long will the market last? No, this how long, boom? Well, I guess the market, but how long will we, I mean, just a simple question. How long will Indianapolis be on the top markets to buy before everyone buys in India and it's no longer a top market to buy in? High tide raises all ships. I mean, we're all going up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Some, you know, Indianapolis, you know, Realtor.com back in December listed us as the second fastest growing real estate market that they predicted in 2022 over 2021 at 14.8%. Number one. Number one is one that's always on the list is Seattle at 15.3%. Wow. We're number two. We beat out New York, L.A., Miami. Nashville. When the heck did that happen? Yeah. It's because all these people are coming here. So they're selling their $2 million shacks in California, <laughs> and they're moving to Holiday Farms and building a custom home. And they've just raised in the past year, according to most of the builders out there, the price is by 30%. In the and same neighborhood? In Holiday Farms. Yeah. You know, that's where all these Chicago people are coming. Half of Holiday, almost half of Holiday Farms is Chicago. Yeah. People moving down there. A quick zip down 65. If they need to go back for whatever reason, they can for a day or two, rent an apartment up there, and they're still living the high life down here in lazy old Indy. Right? Naptown. Naptown. But for them, they've got a great quality of life. And I tell you what, you want to get someone's eyes from outside of Indiana to really bug out of their head? Just tell them we have a 1% constitutional cap property tax rate here yeah oh yeah that drives them nuts yeah. because most of the people are three to four times what we have yeah, yeah. we are so affordable here and we have great schools and low crime and i mean look at what ha is happening in hamilton county we've got this is a great place to, i always lump zionsville in with hamilton county we're all <laughs> we're all friends right but but these are all like places to live if, if you got rid of i saw one i heard one demographer a few years ago say if you got rid of hamilton county in indiana i'm not going to say the expletive that he used but you would have 
you'd have a poop show <laughs> in the state of Indiana. Hamilton County is where it's at. Yeah. We are the economic engine many times over over most of the other any of the other counties in Indiana. Hmm. People want Hamilton County to succeed because without it, you're going to have a mess in the state. It drives other counties. It drives absolutely. It drives especially the donut counties around Hamilton County. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's that's those are the reasons why people are coming here. I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. I think uh, you know, no one. I don't know what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, let alone what's going to happen next year. But I would submit that Indianapolis, you're seeing a shift in living due to COVID. And we're seeing this all over the country, all over the world. And people are moving into suburbs more because they're not as tied to their work. And when they don't have to go to one particular place to work every day that's not their home, they can live wherever they want. And people are choosing to live in affordable markets. And Indianapolis is is one of the best ones in the nation. For for somebody, so so I hear this, and some of it's really exciting, you know, that, that things are elevating and, and yet... For the guy who was listening and just about drove off the road because he wants to tell his wife, I think we should move, mm-hmm. you know, and we could get this for our house and everybody gets really excited. But then the next question is, so then, but how can we buy the next one? Mm-hmm. So for those families, you know, they're, they're in that time. So what's the, what's the silver lining going forward for them? That's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. Yeah, yeah. That's why we have you. <laughs> uh, it's um, you know there, there there's no one right answer to that, but there there are absolutely a lot of products, and, and I would say one of the best things that that we have going for us right now is equity. Homeowners are sitting on more equity than they've ever sat on in history hmm. right now. So take advantage of that equity, unlock that equity, and either utilize a home equity line of credit or a bridge loan, a blanket loan. There's all kinds of different names for it, but basically take the equity in your current house. Use it as a down payment for the next house before you sell your current one and then sell that house and pay that pay that balance down. That's the way a lot of people are doing it. And it works really well. You're still going to be competing with some cash buyers and you're going to have some challenges. But if you can get to that magical 20% down, not have any mortgage insurance, that's really attractive to a lot of sellers if you're a buyer, as well as a real estate agent, that's what I look for is I want to avoid the mortgage insurance for buyers if I can. Yeah. Yeah. This has been gold. Oh man. It's awesome. Um, I, uh, I have one final question for you, Steve. You said something earlier that, um, I really want to make sure we, uh, address if you've, if you've got further thoughts on this, you said there will not be another bubble burst. No, and I just kind of I picked that out of yeah. I heard that the, yeah. the rant. You kind of kind of slid that in there. I'm not going to let you buy. So rant. some people some people think that 08 could happen again. In fact, if you watch the popular movie The Big Short, mm-hmm. they kind of end with some text and and dialogue over how it's it's all going to happen again. It's all already happening again. But you you say no. No. The bubble is not going to nope. burst again. Why? Right. What are the contributing factors to that? I'm going on record. So <laughs> the, the February 24th, right? right. Yeah. 10:56 a.m. So um, it, here's why it, it's not it's not coming. Um, and I've I've read I've read lots of of articles. I've listened to lots of CEOs. I've listened and read lots of economists. Everybody is in the same boat on this that I've read, and that is that what led to the bubble in 0708 
is not the same situation that we have now. Yeah. And I alluded to this earlier with the Dodd-Frank Act. That was, yes, it created a lot of havoc in the real estate world when it happened, but it was needed and it helped the consumer. At the end of the day, that's what we're all about is we want to make sure the consumer is put at the center of the transaction. It should all be about them. We don't want that to happen. In 2007, 2008, there were way too many homes being produced or over 15,000 homes being produced then versus now we're at about seven to eight thousand and that's that's a a number we're still seven years away from being at a balanced market where we're producing as much as demand is requiring right now seven years that's an important number to remember when we're talking about all this when you have demand is outstripping supply not only by a little bit by a lot there's no bubble coming mm -hmm. when you look at the financial stability of our market you know, back then you were having a lot, there's a lot of underwater stuff that was happening with houses being underwater. They were being overvalued. Houses are not overvalued. There is demand. There is still a lot, lot, a long way for us to go. In fact, if you go back 30 years and you take a 4% appreciation line, we are still right at that 4% appreciation over the past 30 years. Oh, wow. We're not above it. Okay. A red flag would be if we started to be jumping up to 8% or so right now, we're not. Uh, it would be another issue if you didn't have a whole lot of buyers. How is that? How is that math adding up? If you have such a huge increase, we we talked about like a ten to twenty percent increase in the market right now. How are we still in line with a four percent thirty year increase if it's so aggressive the last couple of years? Well, think of what it we was just, the eight years before that. So just nothing. It wasn't appreciating at that rate. It was depreciating. That's what, the indie at, market was at depreciating the, at the biggest rate that we've ever seen between 08 to 12. We depreciated. Okay. And we saw at that point, 23% of all sales in Indy were distressed short sale or foreclosure 23%. Wow. That's pretty high. You remember what the yeah, number I told high. you earlier was less than one yeah. that we're right now, less than 1% versus 23. And that was low. There are other markets that we're seeing over 50% of their inventory right. was distressed. Right. That's why that number is not gotten out of control. So that four-year period was so aggressive that it put us back in line with what, what, uh, how aggressive we are We're still we are making now. up for it. Yeah. So you, took, you, you took, go back 30 years, you said, and then say houses sold here, the average, and then go 4% a year to 2022. Here's where you should be. Yes. And then underneath, if you graphed out what happened, up, down, up, down, to yes. whoa, way down. Yes. Well, we got back up, and hey, Pretty look, quickly. 30 years later, we're right where we should be. That's Absolutely. what I take away. Yeah. There is probably another three to four years worth of appreciation that we're seeing. Hmm. Now, uh, this is an asterisk, okay? Here's the <laughs> asterisk, all right? That's for Indianapolis, Indianapolis has been the most conservative, one of the most conservative markets out there. So the rest of the country, about three to four months ago, we saw them crest. And now that appreciation is starting to slow down. Right. The average appreciation rate in our country was about 17%. We are predicting that it's going to be low teens, maybe gasp, <laughs> high, high single digits appreciation rate in some markets. Hmm. You believe that? 
Indy, we're still predicted to see about a 17% appreciation rate this year. This year. I believe next year, so I believe you're going to see 2022 be just as strong as 2021. I believe that 2023 is going to start just as strong as 2022 has. And I believe that you're going to start to see us crest in the summer of 2023 when we naturally take that break where that white hot spring market just takes a breather for a second as people start to take vacations in the summer, go back to school, that kind of thing. I think that's where you're going to start to see that slow down a little bit. And you're going to start to shift. We're always coming into or going out of a buyer's or seller's market, always. But even at that point, those of us who have increased in value in our homes, we're not going to lose. It's just not going to be as strong in Correct. as an increase. It'll yeah. still be an appreciating market. Yeah. It's not going to tank. Great. Um, our, our our economies are stronger than our economy is stronger than it ever has been. Um, I don't know if you know this, but banks do stress tests. The federal government does stress tests on banks. Three years ago was the first year that every bank that they tested didn't fail. Not one of them. They have stronger balance sheets than they've ever had before. People have cash. Right. Cash does not equate to bursts. We're not going to have a bubble that bursts. The real estate market is not going to burst. Now, we are going to go into a contraction at some point, but it's just going to be a natural ebb and flow that we have in our market. I don't think you're going to see this kind of an expansion again. There are so many things that have led to this that are unique. Um, unless we have something else that pops up again, like, God forbid, another COVID situation or, you know, whatever. I don't think you're going to see this long of an expansion. The average expansion lasts five to seven years, followed by an average contraction of 12 to 14 months. We are way off the books on that one. Hmm. So right now... We are just, and, and this, this is why everyone's asking about, are we going to have a bubble? There's got to be a bubble. There's a bubble because we are so far past the expansion average that people think we have to have a bubble. And if you don't look at the numbers, yeah. absolutely, totally understand that. But if you look at the numbers, we are on solid ground. Yeah. And when you look at the supply and the, and the demand right now, Remington, we are at a two-week supply right now for housing inventory. Two weeks. Our average is six months. Yeah. How can you have a bubble burst when you have nothing out there to satisfy an insatiable beast of a buyer's market right now? It's impossible. Yeah. And it's not going to change overnight. And I loved what you said. The other side to that was we fixed it. In 2008, we saw what was wrong. Right. We put it all was these things in to place. It had to we be. fixed it so that that's not going to happen again. Yeah. So I love it. I love. I love all of that. I'm very encouraged by what you said. And in Good. light of all of that, here's my here's my final question: Will we see our professional teams do better? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't have time for that. That's the next. Yeah. Part. All right. All right. All right. Are, Think about that, we are Steve. Out of time. Steve, thank you for providing us yeah. with a couple of viral sound bites. Uh, the the going on record saying there is no bubble. I can't wait to see the reaction on that. I'm going to quote that everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> the most decorated by designation realtor in the world, Steve Rupp. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Steve. Send all your hate mail to Remington. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time as Indy Rose. Step into my circle with the opposite of Urkel. When I pull up flying purple, people eat as good as